Hi, everyone. This is Dan Sullivan, and a great, great pleasure on my part to once again be visiting with Peter Diamandis, and we're exploring exponential technology and the wisdom that goes along with exponential technology. And Peter, hey, Dan, good to see you. We're living in a very unpredictable world right now. It's unpredictable in some ways and very predictable in others. You know, on an individual basis, almost like Isaac Asimov's foundation series, you know, it was sort of the over the long term. And you were just talking about this, you know, certain things like, you know, demographics, as population sizes and so forth are changing. Individuals are not predictable. But, you know, I live in a world where I think technology is very predictable to a large degree. And yeah, anyway. That's my thought. I would say this, that I first encountered you through a book review in the Wall Street Journal, and that's one of my main go-to places because uh, Wall Street really does a good job at curating books. And so I came across it, and it was simultaneously you had met Joe Polish. So that was our connection, and you were very, very advanced in your thinking about the abundance that's possible with technology, if you get your act together and how you utilize technology and you integrate it with all the other systems. At the same time, I've been passionate about history since I was born. I was born two weeks before the Normandy invasion. Hmm. And I was born six weeks before Bretton Woods, which was essentially the economic and trade agreement that was put together at the end of the Second World War, mainly to counter the Soviet Union. First of all, the world had to be rebuilt because it was torn apart by the Second World War. There was only a couple of countries that came out better off of the Second World War. The U.S. was one, Canada was one, Australia was another. And aside from that, everybody else suffered badly economically or they were wiped out. You know, they were flattened by the Second World War. So the U.S. wanted to avoid being involved in a European war. Again, they had done two in this century, and the United States was essentially created not to be involved with Europe's troubles, and here they are, they had gotten involved in two of them. So they didn't want to do this anymore, so they put together basically a global economy, which was based on the U.S. dollar as the currency, as the reserve currency, and then the U.S. military would guarantee trade routes. Okay, the, hmm. especially the Navy. The U.S. Navy, people don't have any comprehension how overpowering the U.S. Navy is. <laughs> so they've basically guaranteed trade routes, which meant that almost anybody could start producing anywhere and shipping anywhere, and that created the global economy. But the reason was to defeat the Soviet Union, which happened 31 years ago. Wow. And everybody else went on with it as if, there's no change. We don't see anything change. Don't tell the big guy, you know, <laughs> and everything else. So what I've been following this, you know, for 70 years. <laughs> so I've really paid attention that I totally subscribe to your six Ds, and I'd like to go through those mm -hmm. again to get the context from the technological side. And I'm totally convinced that this is true, but not everywhere. It's true in especially the United States. And it's interesting, right? Because when you say that, the question is from which perspective? In other words, technology that is created in Silicon Valley 
that demonetizes and democratizes. We can go through the 60s. That technology, when it's sold in Nairobi, is still demonetizing and democratizing those services in Nairobi. It's not born in that country, but it can be utilized in that country. Yeah, but certain individuals in Nairobi can take advantage of it, Well, but not the, not the general population like the United States. So let's have that conversation because, I mean, one of the basic D's democratization is the notion that ultimately it enables 8 billion people on the planet. Do you want me to cover the 60s real quick for those? If you would, uh, yeah. And then yeah. I'm going to cover the 60s that I've been able to pick up, especially one writer, and he writes books as thick as the one you send us out yeah, that we sent to our clients. <laughs> so he writes very, very thick books. So all the 10 Times clients got a copy of this with a video with him this quarter, and he makes some remarkably accurate predictions just based on demographics and geography. So all right. but we'll get the tech side, and then we'll go through the his 60s. The geographic side. So yeah. the 60s first made their appearance in my second book, Bold. And the 60s is one of the cornerstones for Abundance 360 and the coaching that I give to the CEOs who are, are part of that. I'll read them and I'll talk about them. It's digitization, deceptiveness, disruptiveness, demonetize, demilitarialize, and democratize. What does that mean? Whenever you digitize any kind of a technology, and what really hit me first was when the digital camera came into existence. And you digitized film, you digitized the camera. It's now an app on your phone. It's improving every year as you download the next version of the app. And when you digitize something and turns into ones and zeros, in the early days of that technology's progress, it's deceptively slow. So the first digital camera took 0.01 megapixel images. Next year, it took 0.02, then 0.04, then 0.08. And it's the law of the doubling of small numbers. They all look like zero. You don't notice them. But when you double something 20 times, it's a million times bigger. You you double it 30 times, it's a billion times bigger. So when that digital camera from 0.01 megapixels doubled 30 times, it killed Kodak because it became disruptive. So early on, Uber, Airbnb, all of these digitized companies, it's deceptive. You know, it's only in San Francisco, then it's only New York, it's only black cars, and then all of a sudden it's disruptive. It's every place on the planet, and it's cheaper than a taxi, and it's destroyed the taxi industry. What you see after this disruption is you've demonetized the product and service. If things are ones and zeros, the cost of replicating it is effectively zero. Mm -hmm. And the cost of transmitting it is effectively zero. So it's massively demonetized, right? Digital photography versus film photography. You remember those days, down when you used to go and you'd take 36 ectochrome and you'd hope that photo came out and you'd pay for the entire thing to be developed and then you get all these blurred images and and you miss that one. Well, don't have to do that anymore. Mm -hmm. And when you demonetize it, you're also dematerializing it, which means the physical camera's gone away. The physical film has gone away. It's become dematerialized Mm -hmm. onto an app on your phone. Mm -hmm. And then it democratizes it. When it's effectively free and it can be transmitted at the speed of light over the internet, it's available to everyone everywhere. Mm -hmm. So those are the six Ds. And how do you map those against the Ds from this author? 
Yeah, well, my sense is what I've created a concept, which is called rich tech, poor tech. Mm -hmm. Okay. And my sense is that if you were rich tech in 2019, you will be rich tech going forward. And if you weren't rich tech in 2019, it might be 30 to 50 years before you will be rich tech, if then. And what do you define as rich tech? Rich tech is that the new applications, the new disruptions are actually positive impacts on the rest of society. In the United States, I mean, first of all, before the digital revolution, the United States was the wealthiest country on the planet, okay? They're also the most secure country on the planet in the sense that they've got water 3,000 miles of it to the east. They don't border on it. They've got 5,000 miles of water to the west, and they have essentially two parts of their economy, Canada on the north and Mexico. So NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, actually unites the three countries into a single economic system. And what's important about that, especially the United States and Mexico, is that various components of technology are required to have lower price scales as far as labor goes. Now, Southeast Asia has been everybody's favorite for the last 30 or 40 years, simply because in Asia, you can have 20 gauges down from top price for a technology to the lowest. So, you know, Japan is the top, South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, probably four countries that are at the top. And then you move down, you have Malaysia and you have the Vietnam, Vietnam, and then you get down and you have like the Philippines are the real low cost labor. And you've got to have that to develop technology because no technology is created, manufactured, assembled in the same place. There's a movement. So, for example, what's been revealed is that China isn't very, very good at manufacturing chips. They're very, very low-level chips, Mm -hmm. okay? And they go into your teddy bear that talks. They go into parts of your temperature system in your houses. But when you get to high chips... Yeah, you go to Taiwan. Yeah, Yeah. Taiwan, Japan. But... 70% of all the profits made on chips worldwide is actually made in the United States because that's where the design is. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge scramble now. I mean, the U.S., uh, I think it was a month ago, simply said, we're basically cutting off the sale of high-level chips to China. And they gave Americans who were involved in helping the Chinese one week to decide whether they were employees, they're changing their citizenship to Chinese citizenship, or they could keep their American passport, but they had to be out of the country in one week. Okay. So that's a factor that disables China now as a technology country. They are a tech poor country. Okay. They have about 200 million people who are at a very advanced level, and they have about 1.1 million people who are just entering the 20th century. 1.1 billion, you mean? Yeah. 1.1 billion. Yeah. So what's happened that has changed things is the cost of energy has gone through the roof and the cost of transportation has gone through the roof since COVID started. And you don't have a technology economy unless you have two things you can guarantee. One is Abundant, reliable, low-cost energy, that's one. And the second one is abundant, reliable transportation, 
Okay. And my sense is that very few countries have both of those. The United States is one of them. Actually, France is one of them. France, because they never gave nuclear, up nuclear yeah. power, you know, and they're building more nukes in Europe because of the Ukraine situation. Now, all plans to decommission nuclear plants have been abandoned, and now there's new plans for building new nukes, and there's new generations of nuclear Yeah, and, and by the way, for those who don't know, I mean, I think the new generation of nuclear power plants are mandatory. I think it's ridiculous not to be building as many of them. They're fail-safe plants. They're a very different generation than we saw at Three Mile Island or Fukushima, and they don't fail in any of these ways. It's, you know, I like to say, I feel they're safe enough, I'd put one in my backyard. But they won't be mandatory in democracies. They can only be mandatory in a dictatorial country. Yeah, and they take a long time to build and permit and so forth. Yep. And solar is getting so cheap that you're seeing so many natural gas and coal plants being shut down, even in the midst of being built, because it's cheaper to go to renewables. Yeah, but there's only five geographic areas in the world where you can actually do solar power and where you have reliable, abundant, cheap solar power. Actually, Northwest Texas is probably the best place in the world. They have the best wind power and they have the best solar power, and they also have the biggest reserves. My sense is that in Canada, this will all disappear. Solar and wind will totally disappear in Canada because the weather is so bad. It's dark half the year, and the technologies are not exponentially improvable. Wind is almost at the top of its technological. So all I'm saying is that the 60s are absolutely true for the United States. I think the United States will continually advance and transform itself. But my sense is that the biggest movement technologically for the United States over the next 25 to 30 years is actually going to be in manufacturing of reshored manufacturing. Part of the reason is a superb transportation system You've got energy everywhere. You've got cheap energy everywhere. And they'll be the first ones to widely use the new generation of nukes because server farms, you build a new server farm, which uses a massive amount of electricity. You just have your own nuke at the server farm. TSMC, the biggest, highest level chip maker, building a 20,000 employee factory north of Phoenix, and that would be an ideal place because it's going to take a lot of electricity out of the Arizona grid if they don't have it. In my home state of Ohio, Intel's building a their biggest chip factory in the world. So my sense is that the place where the new nuclear power is going to be used is not around the world. It's going to be used in the United States and probably other advanced countries that are more or less in the same economic alliance with the United States. So what I came up with, and this is not original to me, I'm just sort of synthesizing. I got two Peters here. I've got Peter Diamandis and I have Peter Zion, who's a geopolitician. And he says, first of all, the global economy of produce anywhere, ship anywhere, use anywhere is over, essentially over because the transportation cannot be guaranteed, the energy cannot be guaranteed around the world, okay? The second one is depopulation. So there's only five advanced countries that will have a bigger population 10 years from now than 
they have right now. The U.S. is one of them. France is one of them. Spain is one of them. Sweden is one of them. Argentina is one of them, and possibly New Zealand. Everybody else will have a lower population. My numbers are that the U.S. population is going to be shrinking. I mean, our birth rates have dropped down. Not birth rate. You'd ask and turn on the immigration flaws. Okay, well, listen, that's a crazy thing. We've turned off immigration. You know, we should be stamping a, a green card to everybody who gets a PhD at Stanford and MIT and, and keep them here. Instead, we send them back. Yeah. But everybody's dropping. China's dropping like a rock. Russia's dropping like a rock. And Russia even starts a war with a declining population. So they've already lost 100. I saw an article the other day that it looks like, you know, sperm production rates are falling. So it's this being hit by two things. One, people not wanting to have families because of the unpredictability or because they want to enjoy life more. And then not being able to have families because you know reducing sperm rates and the question is why is that happening yeah but that's another conversation one i'm not qualified for yeah so the depopulation was the next one and then the next one is decentralization and the fact that these big massive cities were only possible because you had very very cheap transportation and you had very very cheap electricity you can see it even in the large american Cities are the large American states. California, for the first time, lost enough population to lose a congressional seat. New York's been losing congressional seats. These really big states, Illinois is losing. Part of the reason is that COVID forced virtual conferencing and made it very, very profitable. I mean, we're back to really historic numbers for in-person workshops, but we've added another 15% with virtual workshops this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of advantages because the costs are very low with virtual workshops. And I see the future of coach. You know, I mean, if we're 10 times where we are now in 15 years, the large majority of that will be virtual where nobody travels. There's no food involved. I've been trying to talk you into a virtualizing coach for 10 years. I wanted to put my robot in the back of your room so I didn't have to deal with Air Canada every quarter. Well, we wouldn't have allowed that. I know. You made know. a convincing argument, but COVID made a compelling offer. Your business is over, so <laughs> that's the compelling offer. So another one is debureaucratization. Yeah. yeah. But let's talk on decentralization. One of the things, the question is, why do people go into big cities? And they would go there because the jobs were there. They would go there because education was there. They would go there because the arts or the social was there. Obviously, Zoom and global broadband and low-cost computers Mm -hmm. have enabled you to be educated, get a job, be entertained any place on the planet. And when you fly over the United States, you know, it's like mostly barren land. So you can go and find your little fiefdom. Yeah. But here's the thing. You also don't get married and have children if you go to the big cities because the living space is so small. We've noticed in our program that entrepreneurs, we don't have that many in our 20s, but they're not married, they get married. And the moment they get married, there's two things they want. They want real estate and they want much lower living costs. Mm. So the U.S. before COVID was the least urbanized city. So de-urbanization is another thing that's one of the D's, okay? And the thing is that Americans don't really sense this the way it's happening in the rest of the world. But China imports 85% of its energy, okay? Yes. 
85% of all the energy that goes into China has to be imported. And the vast majority of that comes from the Persian Gulf. Okay. And two military destroyers by another country can stop their energy supply. Okay. And India would be the country to do it. India has tremendous refining capabilities. So they'll just invite every freighter from the Middle East. Japanese are in a similar situation. They're totally dependent upon oil from the Middle East. That's about it. It's from the Middle East. And my sense is that the cost of the unreliability of transportation is going to prevent the northern part of Asia. So the Japanese, the Koreans will be hard-pressed to guarantee their energy. Japan was really smart because in the 1980s, they hit a wall. And what they did is they started saying, we're going to move all of our factories to where the customers are. Okay. So the vast majority of Japanese manufacturing that sells to American customers, that those factories are in the United States, but not in the union states, in the non-union states. I mean, I do believe we're going to be seeing a lot of shifting onshoring, obviously, manufacturing, but we're going to see the labor market shifting to robotics in a huge way. I mean, what I'm watching and seeing the humanoid robots coming online, which are just a few years from now, you saw Elon's announcement of Tesla bot, also called Optimus. And I've got a few humanoid robot companies coming this year at Abundance 360 in March to speak and show their tech. Their business market is the labor market. And so when you have something that's able to navigate all human areas, work the kitchen, clean the floors, clean the bathrooms, whatever it might be, it's leveling the playing field. And we might manufacture those robots in a Tesla plant, but they'll be sold globally. So the impact of those technologies isn't restricted to the US or to France. I see those technologies demonetizing and democratizing and going globally. Don't you? No, because I don't think the other countries are going to have the capital for this because so much of their capital is going to be just going into food. You know, I mean, food is the ultimate stopper if you can't guarantee your population food. A lot of what's happening in China, you know, with the protests, it's about the lockdown, but it's the fact that people are really hungry. They haven't been able to get food. Okay, and the Chinese also import 85% of all the ingredients that are needed for food production. They have very, very small farms compared to North America, Mm -hmm. you know, and everything else. And they just can't get the fertilizer. They have very bad soil. They need five times as much fertilizer per acre or hectare, whichever you deal with, than they do in the United States, like a state like Illinois or Iowa. They don't have to use any fertilizer whatsoever because the soil is so rich. I think the central point here is that the world is shifting, not just on the technological level, it's shifting on the social level, it's shifting on the cultural level, and it's shifting on the political level. Mm-hmm. Very few countries are in a position, first of all, to develop new technology like the United States. I call it American warp drive, that the U.S. has basically spent the last 75 years pulling everybody up to a level. But the main reason was to defeat the Soviet Union, which happened 31 years ago. Without Mm -hmm. anyone's permission, they just quit one day. You know, if they had asked permission, nobody would have given them permission to quit, you know, (laughs) because they were so useful as a 
as a bad guy. Counter bundle, you know, you have a yes. counter bundle situation. So my sense is the combination of these 60s, like your 60s, are very, very uneven and very, very unequal. Okay. The United States is much more advanced technologically than Canada, for example. Okay. My belief is that we haven't seen any technologies that are demonetizing and democratizing that have not flown globally, right? There are more cell phones on the planet than there are humans today. And we are seeing high bandwidth connectivity, right? 5G, we're at 2.8 billion people connect on 5G, heading towards 8 billion. We've got Starlink providing extraordinary coverage around the world. I mean, yes, people have to be able to afford the basics, but they're becoming cheaper and cheaper. There's going to be a point at which you know, maybe it's not Apple on an iPhone, maybe it's Android phones from Google, but where these phones are given away for free to people and they're given away for free by Amazon or Google mm -hmm. so that they have a way of connecting with that customer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, like if you get your phone from Amazon, great, but you can only buy stuff on Amazon. Yeah. So I think this technology is a leveling technology. I mean, I think wealth creation is going to increase disproportionately in the countries that you mentioned, but I don't see the technology being stopped at any borders. But if they don't have the transportation to support their economy, either shipping things or receiving things, they don't have the energy to develop, even if you ship robots over, is there an electrical grid or is there an electrical system? And this is an international organization that measures energy usage around the planet. And in 1990, the proportion of global energy that was supplied by fossil fuels, which is essentially coal, petroleum, the diesel, kerosene, you know, all the things that are petroleum-based, was 80% of world energy. Mm -hmm. Last year, it was 81%. So in uh, 32 years or 31 years, because it was to 2021, for all the emphasis on renewable fuels, first of all, two-thirds of renewable is water power that mostly around the world was put into place a century ago, that basically there's been almost no increase of... But no, but there's been a significant increase in the, in the global population, and there's been a significant increase in the utilization of energy. So... Yeah, but it's still the renewables, if you use wind power and solar power as the two examples, uh -huh. they were like 1% or 2% of total energy usage 32 years ago, and they're still 1% or 2% of global energy. And uh, I disagree. This year in 2022, solar and wind represented 50% of all new capacity being added. Against how much existing capacity? Sure, it's against existing capacity, but what's going to happen is that wedge of the curve is increasing as new energy capacity. You know this, and you've mentioned this before, the wealth of a nation is proportional to its ability to produce energy. Yeah. Right? And there's enormous inequalities in the world. I mean... Sure. But also the poorest countries in the world are the sunniest countries in the world, if you look at around the equator. So I could imagine those countries being developing out solar or you might see, you know, Saudi and China and other parts coming in, investing in plants and then out. First of all, China is out of the picture as far as investing in the United States. In the United States, yeah, but not Africa. I mean, we're going to see a lot of countries coming into Africa to invest. Yeah. 
Yeah. The problem is in energy manufacturing, it's transmission of energy. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's transmission of energy. And Africa is a disaster as far as transmitting energy. It is today. Yeah. Well, and South America is too. South America is large parts of Asia or, you know, they have mountains, they have rivers, and it's hard to transmit. I'm just saying that there's the digital world and there's the material world, and the material world does not transform exponentially. Yeah, I mean, look at the sheer amount of inputs for electric vehicle batteries. It's from 17 different places on the planet. And right now, I mean, the number of bankruptcies among EV companies just because they can't get the material inputs, you know, right now, you know, what I've noticed about EVs, our only car in Canada is a Tesla X, which Babs loves and which I support her love. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Is that what I've noticed most people with EVs, that's a second or third car. Their main car is a gas-powered SUV, because it's the long-trip SUV. Right. Now, I don't think batteries are going to improve exponentially over the next 10 or 15 years, unless they can find all sorts of material substitutes. Like lithium comes from so few places on the planet, most of them not really peaceful places. Australia is one of the biggest producers, and it does pretty well. And there are new technologies for extracting it. And there mm-hmm. is a massive investment going into batteries and electrification of vehicles. And that's being driven by governmental laws, right? You've seen dozens of countries around the world, a lot in Europe and also Asia, just now beginning the United States, where the governments have said, thou shall not sell a internal combustion engine car after yeah. 2030 or after 2035. Yeah, do you think that that's politically predictable? Well, we've seen the... You know, Volkswagen alone has committed $300 billion to electrifying their entire fleets. So if you look at the number of electric from the major auto manufacturers, they are electrifying their fleets, and that's creating an increased demand for battery technology, and that's seeing investments and new innovation going in. Mm-hmm. And so I think we'll get to quick charge batteries and 600-mile range systems. I really do think we'll get there in the next five years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well... Just from my own personal experience, I don't see the happening where I live, and I live most of the year in Canada. I mean, for example, autopilot is illegal in Canada. And the reason is, it's not technological. The reason is, where's the liability? Yeah, who owns that? (laughs) Yes, good lawyers. And the other thing, they're asking people to be responsible, but not in control. And I think that there's a psychological issue there. You have to be there with your hands ready to take over the car, so you're responsible, but you're giving up control to a machine. I think there's a lot of different issues, psychological issues, and even in A360, if you go back to our first year of A360, you know, official launch, which was in Marina del Rey in January of 2013, You laid out a lot of different technologies, but they've been very uneven in their development over the last nine years. The one that has been most surprising to me is regenerative medicine, Hmm. okay? And when Max came up, your buddy Max at the Bold Ventures came up and talked on the Saturday night when we were in Carlsbad. 70% of your investments are in regenerative medicine. They're not in the technologies. Yeah, I've shifted... For personal reasons and reasons of interest, I've moved, it's about two-thirds of our investments into biotech, health tech, longevity-related technologies. Yeah. I've said this 
and I've reshaped Abundance 360 in this direction as well, the two areas that have the greatest potential for impacting humanity and industries and us is biotech and AI. Yep. In fact, I've dedicated an entire day this year just to AI because it's stunning. Yeah. And the truth is that regenerative medicine could be all three days if you wanted to. And you Well, the platinum trip, it is five days. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But the whole point is that it's something that affects everybody. Yep. Yeah. And not only that, it affects you personally because your education is in medicine and technology. Yeah. Yeah. You know? I mean, I guess that's what Harvard and MIT <laughs> would be. And I think you're a different presenter when you're in the area of regenerative medicine than you are with the other technologies. Yeah, well, I, I spend most of my time researching either building companies or investing in those companies and trying to learn. I was just on a call mm -hmm. uh, just before this with one of the bold investments, one of the companies I, I advise, Immunus, and they have an incredible product that basically is all of the stuff that a stem cell pumps out, the exosomes and the exudate, all the proteins and growth factors, they've created that into a product. And it is one of the most potent anti-aging formulations for muscle building and for reducing inflammation. They're going into human trials right now. Anyway, I'm, I'm super pumped about it. And, yeah. and there's so many of these going on. I know. And so the question becomes, going back to the, you know, the rich tech, poor tech, I mean, I think one of the questions that you're pointing out very appropriately is where are all the breakthrough technologies going to get funded and where's the intellectual horsepower to develop it and who's going to own intellectual property? I think the world is the marketplace, but I think the disproportionate wealth creation mm -hmm. is going to be in a handful of countries and has been in a handful of countries so far. Yeah, and my feeling is that'll be true in the future, even to a larger extent. It's very, very interesting, and it isn't so much a function of technology, it's a function of private property laws. Okay, so for example, fracking, which is really possible in most of the world, mm -hmm. you can do fracking. The United States is 95% of the fracking in the world, because it's the only country where private citizens own the property underneath their land goes right to the center of the earth unless the state takes it away. New York took it away. So that means that the development of fracking can be totally entrepreneurial. You have a small fracking company. They do a deal with 15 farmers. And, you know, anything that goes across your land, whether it's pipeline or we're digging in your land, guess what? You're going to get 20% of the proceeds. Mm. For example, Canada, it's not true. As a Canadian citizen, I don't own the property under my land. Okay. And I don't know too many other countries in the world that allow private citizens to own their land. Well, it's the legal system that is supporting technology. Mm. Okay. It's the legal system in the United States. I mean, the legal system in the U.S. totally supports everything you're talking about with the 60s. The intellectual property laws are in the first article of the Constitution. Well, and what's amazing, I mean, the Constitution is the software that runs our nation, if you want to think about it that way. And it's incredible that it's been valid for centuries thus far. Well, the other thing is, it's not there to protect the government. It's there to protect the people from the government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
We'll talk a lot about this. I mean, go through the 36 boxes because you could have a podcast on each one of the boxes. So let's rattle off for a summation. The 60s from the technology side are digitized. You get deceptive, then disruptive growth, and then you demonetize, dematerialize, and democratize products and services. And from the geopolitical side, you want to read them off? Yeah, deglobalize, depopulate, decentralize, debureaucratize. And one I didn't mention is decredentialize. And that is, uh, I mean, companies like Google now, you don't even require a college degree to work for Google. Yeah. Okay. They'll put you through six months of their training. They'll teach you what they need to know. And my sense is the era of large higher educational institutions is over. I bet half the colleges and universities in the United States don't exist 10 years from now. So that sounds like a fun conversation for our next podcast. You want to do that? The future of education? Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Okay. All right. Take care, everybody. Dan, good to see you, my friend. Thank you, Peter.